morning. Happy Easter. Uh, on Easter, there is this beautiful tradition. It's a traditional greeting in which one says, Christ is risen, and they all say, Christ is risen indeed. Beautiful. Let's try that one more time. Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. It's a wonderful reminder that this is the most important day of the year. You know, Christmas gets a ton of hang time. It gets a ton of moment in our culture, but Easter is what it's all about. That greeting in particular insists that we remember the importance of this moment. For Easter is everything. More than a celebration of spring, Easter is the climax of our Christian story. It's God's invitation into a new world, his kingdom. It's a day that declares that our God has defeated death. The claim is that Jesus died, was buried, and came back to life in the flesh. And as the Apostle Paul put it bluntly, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and we are, are of the most to be pitied. So either Easter is everything, the marker of a dawn of a new creation, or we are a pitiful bunch in our pastels singing crazy songs. Either Easter is everything or we are missing out all together. Easter has to be everything. Welcome to Midtown Church. As Cassie mentioned, my name is Alex. I get the joy of leading this small Jesus community with Cassie. And we're just thankful to be here on the most precious day of the year. The day we remember that Christ rose from the dead. It's a wonderful reminder of our story and the power that it has in us. But to be honest with you, even on weeks like this and days like this, I find myself doubting. Asking questions like, is there really an empty tomb in Jerusalem? In many ways, I'm a pastor that is more apprehensive than unwavering. I'm a cynic that has to cling to his faith at every turn. I'm a pessimist. I'm skeptical. I'm uncertain. I'm what the philosopher Charles Taylor calls disenchanted. And no, I'm not talking about a sequel to a beloved 2007 movie starring Amy Adams. I'm culturally disenchanted. And so are you. Let me explain. In Taylor's work, The Secular Age which is like a 900-page volume on modern philosophy. There are better ways to torture yourself, so I wouldn't recommend it. But it is this brilliant book on how we got to the moment we've gotten to. He sets out to explain how we've arrived at this moment, but maybe more importantly, he sets out to describe what our secular moment feels like. Taylor suggests that in the past 200 years, we have told and we have been told a disenchanted story, a story of subtraction, that our world has been drained of all its magic. There are no more supernatural presences. Ghosts, ghouls, God and the transcendent are no more. The enchanted world is the one we read of in our favorite fantasy novels. 
It's a world of good versus evil, a well-ordered cosmos full of meaning and purpose, a world of magic and mystery. It's the stuff of Lord of the Rings, Narnia, and Harry Potter. And Christians and non-Christians alike, we find ourselves disenchanted because we've been immersed in a culture that presents the material understanding of the world as the only mature and plausible way of thinking. Living out a disenchanted story does not mean you've given up on, it doesn't just mean you've given up in believing in fairies. It also smuggles in this sense that science and technology have an explanation for everything and every question we might ask. Hold on. I know the red flags just went up. I promise we're not that church. But hear me out for a second. There's this idea in our cultural dialogue that science can and will eventually explain everything. This comes from a movement in the 1980s that believed humans were on the brink of discovering how reality works. Many, no, many works were put out claiming that we will soon find the answer to everything. And by and large, the science community has altogether abandoned this reality. The ones who are touching the data, who are looking in the microscopes, who are looking at the telescopes, have abandoned this idea that we have solved everything or that we can ever solve everything. But in many ways, that idea that everything is just a Google away persists. There's this idea that continues to persist in our mind and in our culture and in our heart that I should have the answers to everything. That the mystery and the emptiness in my life is just a missing answer. It's just an article away. It's just a podcast away. It's just a YouTube video away. But by and large, the scientific community has abandoned this idea that as human beings... We can know everything. Philip Anderson, a Nobel laureate in physics, when told about other scientists' claim that they could solve the riddle of reality, here's how he responded. He said, you never understand everything. When one understands everything, one has gone crazy. <laughs> or Paul Feyerabend, an Austrian philosopher best known for his work on the philosophy of science, once said, you think that humans can figure it out? This to me seems so crazy. It cannot possibly be true. What they figured out is one particular response to their actions. And this response gives the universe and the reality that is behind this universe leaves it laughing. Ha ha, they think we have found me out. He's quite the flamboyant, flamboyant character. Writer for Scientific America, John Horgan, states that there are still many mysteries at work in our world. No one understands the origin of reality or how human beings experience consciousness. We don't know whether life exists anywhere else in the universe and know that YouTuber did not figure it out. <laughs> Your favorite conspiracy theory probably isn't true. By no means is my hope to demonize the scientific community and move back to a 15th century superstition. I much prefer modern medicine over leeches and bloodletting. 
Like, I am in no way wanting to demonize the scientific community. I simply want to name this sense or this idea, this feeling that Google has all the answers to our questions. Or if Google doesn't have it, it exists out there. Disenchanted stories leave us desperate for answers to all of our questions. And they only leaving, leave us with a sense of emptiness. Now, I know Louis C.K. is a controversial figure, so I'm not quoting him as a luminary or even someone you should listen to. But simply as someone who gives voice to the effects of this disenchanted story. Several years back, he was on Conan O'Brien, and they're sitting there joking, as comedians do. And uh, they're talking about teenagers and cell phones. And Louis launches into this humorous case for why he won't let his kids have cell phones. He claims that they're just distractions. And this is what he says. What the phones are taking away is the ability to just sit there. That's being a person. Because under everything in your life, there is that thing. That empty, forever empty. That knowledge that it's all for nothing and that you're alone. It's down there. And sometimes when things clear away, you're not watching anything, you're not in your car, and you're just going, oh no, here it comes, that I'm alone. It starts to visit you, just this sadness. Life is tremendously sad just by being in it. This comedian, in a moment of brutal honesty, articulates a painful experience we all know. The existential dread that sits like a rock in our stomach. The haunting loneliness, the empty void, and he's doing it for laughs, but what he describes sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's almost like we're waiting for and expecting the next disappointment in our life. This is the result of continuing to tell disenchanted stories. Stories that drain the magic and the wonder from our world. Is it possible that in telling disenchanted stories that we've lost something essential? What if we've lost a sense of the mystery and the bigness of it all? What if we've lost the ability to be surprised by the simple joys of life? What if we've simply come to expect that the world is empty, harsh, and hostile? What if we've lost a sense of wonder? My hope is that as we approach resurrection, as we stand here on Easter Sunday, that we can recover something like a sense of wonder, a sense of curiosity, surprise, and awe that was the beginning of the scientific process in the first place. It was those who were looking at the mystery of the world and in awe and wonder said, I need to explore this. May that same pattern be said of us. They were curious, like children, wide-eyed and full of wonder, that we might be disrupted by delight, awakened to astonishment and welcomed into worship. Might it be that the story of Easter is an invitation into a life of wonder. 
Luke's account of Easter in particular is shot through the center with wonder. With the time we have together, I want to explore and wander through Luke's account. I want to work through what he says on that first Sunday and begin to ask the question, what is Jesus inviting us to? So if you would, turn with me to Luke 24. If you're unfamiliar with the Easter story, it centers around the life, ministry, and times of a Jewish rabbi named Jesus. That was not like a hard answer. <laughs> Thank you guys. <laughs> Questioning everything. Yes, Jesus. It's the Sunday school answer and it almost always works. This rabbi has just spent three years among the Israelite people teaching of God's coming kingdom that they could live with God as their king. And to demonstrate the validity of that claim, he journeys through the Israelite countryside, giving sight to the blind, hope to the poor, and freedom to the oppressed. Because he taught that there was only one true king of Israel, or for the world for that matter, he made quite a few en enemies, as one would. And because of that, and because of the betrayal of one of his closest friends, Jesus is handed over to the Roman Empire for execution on a Roman cross. Now to be clear, Jesus is not the first to die on a cross, nor was he the last. He was one of thousands that died at the hands of Rome. But what marked Jesus as unique was not his death, but his funeral. Let's pick up at the end of chapter 23 with what Luke writes. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. On Friday, Jesus is executed. His female disciples see where he's laid. And then on Saturday, they go to pre preserve and to um, observe the Jewish Sabbath, so they rest all day on Saturday. Probably not much resting going on, but they stay at home. And on Sunday, they make their way to the tomb to prepare Jesus' body for burial. Picking up in verse 1 of 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now I want to make something very clear. People were not in the habit of getting out of the tomb in first century Israel. This wasn't like just another Sunday. Nor did these women go to the tomb with burial spices just in case Jesus was still dead. We can oftentimes read this story with a bit of chronological snobbery, thinking that these ancients were so gullible, thinking that they were going and they would just be fooled into thinking Jesus was gone. We think that they're especially susceptible to believing in the resurrection, but they were smart enough and they knew well enough that dead people stayed dead. These women went early in the morning to do the hard work of grieving, of mourning a friend. Their Messiah had been brutally murdered. Their rabbi and teacher was no longer there to guide them, 
Their friend was no longer going to be there for dinners, for walks, or for celebrations. They're sick with grief, traumatized by the events of the past week, and exhausted, I would imagine, from a lack of sleep. And instead of doing their work with whatever dignity they could muster, they arrive at what I would call a grave robbery. The Messiah's body is gone. And I would imagine this is a most unsettling and painful surprise. But soon that surprise will turn to fear, picking up in verse 4. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their heads to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? To their shock, instead of the body of their king, they are greeted by two heavenly messengers with a question that will rock them to their core. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Picking up in verse 6. He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and raised on the third day. He is not here, but has risen. This is the most explosive statement in all of scriptures. There was a man whose heart stopped beating for three days. His lungs were without breath for 72 hours. His brain was deprived of oxygen for 4,320 minutes. He was dead, but now he is alive. This isn't just another miracle. This is an act that defies the natural laws of the universe. But if you are the mind behind the universe, the maker of the atom and the author of life itself, you might have some ideas about how to restart. Luke offers no commentary, no explanation, no answers on how Jesus accomplished this. It is a profound mystery that sits at the heart of our faith. He was dead, and now he is risen. No trite explanations or musings, just a statement and an announcement. He is not here, he is risen. The heavenly messengers say, remember how he told you. Later on that same day, Jesus will journey with two of his disciples. They're totally unaware of who he is because they weren't expecting someone to come back from life. And Jesus says this to those two disciples. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures concerning himself. This book, the Bible is a library of ancient writings of both divine and human origin that tell a unified story leading to Jesus. And according to this library, the origin of humanity is that our God scooped up the dust of his earth and breathed his life into it, forming man and woman in his image. Humans were created to bear his image and to live eternally with him, but in a moment of insurrection, a moment of rebellion, we believed the lie that we could be like God, choosing for ourselves what is good and what is evil. And since then, all of creation, 
and all of human history has lived under our pitiful reign of sin. That first sin in the garden and every sin since putting us on a trajectory to death. Made for everlasting life, but we settled for death. We strive to be like God, choosing for ourselves what is good and what is evil. And the result of our hubris is violence, trauma, exploitation, and death. That's Israel's story over and over and over again. And that's our story, isn't it? We see it played out every day on the news cycle, on our feed, in our city, on the block, and in our workplace. We've become experts at hurting one another. Experts at wounding those we call neighbor, those we call sister, those we call brother, those we call spouse. Experts on hurting one another. But the mission of Jesus was to end that cycle, to disrupt and overthrow our pitiful kingdoms and invite us into the life we were meant for under the benevolent reign of our God. This is what the resurrection does. It overthrows the powers of evil, setting us free to choose another way, and it invites us to see what God is really like. Self-sacrificing, gracious, loving. The resurrection is Jesus' victory over death, sin, and the evil one. And this is how N.T. Wright summarizes the Easter story The good news is that the one true God has now taken charge of the world. In and through Jesus and his death and resurrection. The ancient hopes have indeed been fulfilled, but in a way nobody imagined. God's plan to put the world right has finally been launched. The ancient sickness that had crippled the whole world and humans with it had been cured at last so that new life can rise up in its place. Life has come to life and is pouring out like a mighty river into the world in the form of a new power, the power of love. The good news was and is that all this has happened in and through Jesus, that one day it will happen completely and utterly to all creation, and that we humans, Every single one of us, whoever we are, can be caught up in that transformation here and now. This is the Christian gospel. Do not allow yourself to be fobbed off with anything else. I don't think fobbed off is bad. I don't know. So somebody check me on that. Don't Google it. (laughs) Let's pick back up in verse 8. And the women remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. An idle tale turned to wonder. I think Peter's a little bit like me. 
critical, questioning, doubting, unwilling to accept such an audacious tale. And so he takes off running to examine the evidence for himself. Now, we can't examine the empty tomb ourselves, but we can examine a different set of evidence. Consider this question for just a moment. If Christ did, in fact, rise from the grave, what would you expect to happen? If Christ indeed rose from the grave, what would you expect to happen? Here are my thoughts. You might imagine that those first followers, however marginalized, out of power, and unqualified they were, would be so emboldened and so loyal that they would do anything, even at their own expense. You might expect that the news that a Galilean Jew had come back to life would spread like wildfire, turning the world upside down. You might expect that the organization, ideas, and followers of such a man would transform history and society itself. And all of this came to pass with no special advantage to the followers of Christ other than a single announcement. He has risen. And Peter went home marveling at what had happened. The Greek word used here is themazo. It means to marvel, be astonished, to wonder. It's this strange combination of surprise and discovery. Wonder has a way of doing that, doesn't it? Of sliding past our best defenses and cutting us straight to the heart. Wonder is something that often catches us by surprise, upending our expectation and leading us to new questions. And this is the moment Peter finds himself in. Something that has cut through all of his defenses. Something that's cut to the very heart and a new reality has set in. Wonder is a disruptive delight. Luke's, Luke's strange tale of Easter has wonder right at its center, center. The women perplexed by the empty tomb. The women frightened by the appearance of the angels. Peter going home marveling in wonder at what had just happened. Easter is a story bursting with unexpected and surprising possibilities. It takes the expected experience of grief, loss, and death and transforms it into an astonishing announcement. He is risen. In a world that has been drained of all of its wonder, Easter gives us a fresh infusion of resurrection wonder. For a lifetime, you and I have been disciples of disenchanted stories. Stories that claim we've figured out the way the world works, and let me tell you, it's not good. So in the face of that bleak reality, do whatever numbs the pain. Satisfy whatever sexual desire you can muster until death comes. Or accumulate as much power and influence as you can until death comes. Or surround yourself with nice things and nice people until death comes. But in Easter, we're offered something different. 
we're offered the opportunity to see life with new eyes, to see our world not as a disenchanted wilderness, but as a promised land bursting with beauty, wonder, and God's creative goodness. Our world is a wonder to behold. And the wonder of that first Easter morning continues to echo through the centuries, asking why are you looking for the living among the dead? If the grave is empty, then no life is beyond reach. If he is risen, then everything he promised shall come to pass. If he defeated death, conquering the evil one, and set us free from our sin, then everything is different. We must learn to practice the wonder of resurrection, seeing all of creation with new eyes. Or in the words of Eugene Peterson, the practice of resurrection is an intentional, deliberate decision to believe and participate in the resurrection life. A life out of death, a life that trumps death, a life that is the last word, Jesus' life. Worship team, would you join me? I think it, throughout a couple of different sermons, I've mentioned I love just walking through the city. Uh, Cassie and I live here uh, in Hyde Park, and so we have these beautiful neighborhoods. We have ghetto alleys. Like, we get to see the whole spectrum of Kansas City just in a couple of blocks. And I think I've mentioned I just love walking and praying and just thinking. There's something about walking in the fresh air that just clears your head. And over the last couple of weeks, as we've journeyed through Lent and prepared ourselves for Easter, I was just I spent a lot of time reflecting on the resurrection. And as, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty naturally a skeptic. It's like, there might still be in a tomb that's filled, and I, I, I don't know what to do with that. But the more I walked... And the more I thought about the reality of the resurrection and the implications for my life, for my family, and for this city, I felt like I was looking at the world with fresh eyes. As I walked through the buildings that are caked with decay, falling apart, I saw them with fresh eyes as something that has the opportunity to be brought back to life. Every person I passed on the street, an image bearer born again with the good news or someone who is waiting to hear the good news that he is risen. Every cemetery, funeral home, and a morgue transformed into a waiting room. I felt like I was looking at the world with fresh eyes. My whole walk turned into a delightful disruption. That is wonder. Is to be caught off guard by the goodness of God and the beauty of our world and the preciousness of a stranger. It is to be transformed and to turn all your cynic nature and all your critical thoughts into, I don't think I have all the answers. It's to come back again to the mystery of it all. This is by no means a discouragement to the skeptic, doubter, the cynic, or the thoughtful, because I would classify myself with you. 
Rather, this is an encouragement that if we continue to look at the resurrection of Jesus long enough, his de defeat of death, we might once again have our hearts strangely warmed. We might find ourselves and our worlds enlivened once again with God's creative energy, bringing beauty from the ashes and joy this is resurrection life that we see the whole world with new eyes. So as we come to the end of this Easter sermon, I want to offer three suggestions for cultivating a sense of wonder, particularly around the resurrection. My first suggestion is to pay attention to beauty. Beauty has a way of stopping us in our tracks of catching our breath and of leading us back to awe. It comes with this sense of scale and design and it always points us back to our creator. Keep your eyes open for beauty and you might be shocked in the way that God shows up. Second, open yourself up to the gift of others. It is to open myself up to the gift that other people with their idle tales and their testimonies of what God is doing and what God has done that I begin to see the scale of his work in our world. One of the greatest joys of Cassie and I's life is sitting with you in a coffee shop and just to hear the small little piece of the way God is working in your life. We hear it tens, fifteens, and twenties thousands of times over and over again, just little nuggets of what God is doing, creating a mosaic of his work in our world. Open yourself up to the gift of other people. And then finally, consider the resurrected Christ. Don't let this hour-long gathering be your Christian obligation for the holiday. This is Easter Sunday, but the Easter season lasts for 40 days. It's 40 days of reflecting on, thinking about, and looking at an empty tomb. It's 40 days of celebration so that the wonder of resurrection might live in our bones and inhabit our gut. That resurrection wonder might become the way we For Christ is risen. Christ is risen. moment we'll sing and we'll come to the table of the Lord but would you just close your eyes settle your body take a few deep breaths come to a moment of stillness To consider, let's take a moment to consider how small we are, the scope of it all. Let's take a moment to remember there are still mysteries at work in this world. Let's take a moment to remember that our God shaped us by dirt and breathed his life in. Take a moment to call to mind 
vice, the brokenness, the sin of your own choosing, and the way it weighed you down and broke you, the emptiness that you felt in your own gut. to mind and contemplate the realities that death has been conquered. Consider the fact that our God has defeated death and he is inviting us into his creative work. May we once again experience resurrection wonder. listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.